so much great Advertising Week content, so little time. Snackable AI is now helping you navigate podcasts like this one, event sessions, and other content with chapters, topic tags, and more. Find the insights that matter to you faster than ever before. Learn more at snackable.ai. Television advertising shouldn't be hard. That's why Mountain's self-serve platform makes advertising on connected TV easy and effective for all brands, big and small. With access to premium streaming networks and technologies optimized to drive performance, you have a new way to drive website visits, conversions, and every other metric that matters. Visit Mountain.com to learn more. Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is Stephanie Freed. Stephanie is the Chief Marketing Officer of, of Fandom. Fandom is an incredible community founded, Stephanie, by Jimmy Wales way back, way back when, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. A, a, a true great mind. And it is really the entertainment site, more so than any place else, where fans come first. And that's fans across many genres sports, entertainment, gaming, and beyond. So we're going to talk a lot about fandom, Stephanie, but you've had an incredibly interesting career, which you are very much in the midst of, still in the first half, I would say, if this was a football game. And I, I want to go back and start in an unusual place with you. Um, we're now in the midst of watching incredible things happening in Washington, D.C., we're watching incredible things coming out of our Supreme Court and incredible clearly here is a, uh, a kind word. Uh, we're watching hearings in Congress about January 6th, and this is a little off topic, but I want the benefit of your perspective. Um, you started off way back when working for the House Judiciary Committee for John Conyers. Um, and I'd love to get your take on what you're seeing right now in Washington in this incredible moment, uh, again, probably not the right word, that we are in the midst of here in the United States, our, our country. Yeah, I mean, listen, it's a great question. I Originally, I and the reason I was working in Congress and then in the Senate a little bit was because I always thought I was gonna work in, in politics and I was gonna be a, a congressman or a senator um, and, you know, change the world. And I, I went there, I worked for the House Judiciary Committee. I saw how understaffed they were, especially on the minority side. I was on the Democrat side, which was in the minority at the time. And, you know, also saw, got to be able to look a little bit behind the scenes about in, in how decisions are made, how bills are passed. And really like the true definition of the word politics, which I don't know that I certainly we talk about it a lot to talk about politics and corporations as well. And, you know, I got to say, I was a little bit disillusioned by it because there's so much that's about bartering, about trade offs, as opposed to, you know, you get this feeling that people are going, they're just fighting for what they truly believe in. And a lot of the time, really, it's like they have a few things they want to get done and they're willing to give away certain things in order to get those things done, even if they don't necessarily believe in the other things. And so you end up sometimes with 
um, I think overall bad decisions, bad bills being passed because it's not the thing that maybe in their congressional district that they need to focus on. And they're thinking very much about getting reelected, you know, which obviously makes sense. But it is then hard to also operate from a place of just bringing your values to the table. Um, and so I think there's that push and pull. And so I, I do see that, you know, certainly as there's very loud congressional districts, um, we will tend to get um, some, you know, I think very poor, sad um, things getting done and getting passed um, in order to keep their constituencies happy, whether or not it's the right thing to do for like humans and for the world. And there's a great divide right now. So I, I think it's, you know, it, it's really tough all around. I, I, but I will say, I'm, I'm glad I'm not there. I'm glad that I don't have to day to day, you know, be in it. And I try, you know, fandom's a great place to escape from that and to live in other worlds and imagined worlds and try to forget some of the things that are happening in our real lives right now, which can be pretty depressing. Yeah, I think we'll abandon this topic because it's too depressing <laughs> for us both. Um, I marvel at um, when there are hearings that move off the current January 6th business, but when there are often hearings about our industry in Silicon Valley in particular, I'm always struck by the uh, seemingly incredibly poor preparation um, by those asking the questions. There was, uh, I don't know if it was Zuckerberg or Sundar from uh, Google, but it was uh, one of the senators, I think it was Grassley, who's probably about 84, 85 years old, barely knew how the internet worked. And I always wonder, like, doesn't their staff prepare them? And I imagine when you work for a guy like Conyers, I, I would think that you tried to prepare your congressman for whatever he or she was doing. And it doesn't seem like that even happens now. Yeah. I mean, oh, listen, I mean, I could tell you a lot of stories, but I think, yeah, I mean, I think the problem is, is certainly they're not subject matter experts. They are not people who have worked in businesses who understand how these things actually work, which would be really helpful. Um, and secondly, I think they work and have to operate against such a broad set of topics in industries that it's a lot of the time they're missing a lot of like educational pieces of understanding. So they're probably doing a briefing session like the day before with their staff who has gone deep. But I don't think you can like really understand what is what is going on, how the internet works, for example, right? That would take a really long time to explain. And then we're talking about some super complex issues, right? That even some people in the industry have trouble talking about. So that's why I think that then you get those watered down questions and God forbid there's a follow up question that they weren't prepared to, you know, ask if they if they answer, you know, from, you know, whoever they're they're grilling basically doesn't, you know, answer them. They're not prepared to then have more dialogue around it for sure. Right. And I definitely see that it's hard for me to watch those hearings because it's like I know what goes on behind the scenes and the degree of preparation, which is pretty light to begin with. But then I just know that the people asking the questions aren't the right people to ask the questions. They're mouthpieces, right? Yeah, which is frightening giving those are the same people who are in effect governing our lives on a day-to-day -day basis. 
Uh, okay. Yes, it this, is. This is this is too upsetting. Let 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 let's move off this. Uh, that uh, work you did there um, sort of set the stage for a tremendous run that was research focused for you um, at some of the great companies uh, this country's ever produced. Working at ESPN, working at NBCU, working at Vivo, and rising up the ladder. Talk about that passion for research, where it comes from, and how you sort of evolved into that in that earlier phase of your career. Yeah, of course. Um, so, you know, I think I've always just been interested in and curious about why people make certain decisions, how people's values drive what they do and how they do it and how they act. And even thinking about, you know, in Congress, you know, reading people, like what, what would sway them, how to influence people, like what's really driving them, right? Like, you know, how do you tap into that? And, and how do you make sure too, as you're developing products and services that they're meeting a real need, that they're filling a gap? And then how do you communicate that, right? All the way through the marketing cycle. So I, I've always been really interested in, in just that, you know, I probably could have been even like an anthropologist, um, but I, I'm just really interested in how, what makes people tick and, and how they operate. And when I went to business school, I, most of the people there in business school, they're consultants, they're investment bankers, they're in brand management, they're in very specific different types of, of roles and industries. And I, I wasn't particularly interested in those. And I took a marketing research class and I was taking, I was a, I was a marketing and, and management major. I took a research class and I was just really like fascinated. We would do studies and regression analyses and we would try to understand what was driving someone's desire to purchase a cup of coffee, for example, right? Was it location? Was it price? Was it the branding on the cup? Was it taste? And how do all of those different factors contribute ultimately to that decision? And then how do you actually, even without some of those attributes, make people feel like they're there and build that brand equity? And I was just really, really interested in it. And so I just decided that that was something that I wanted to do more of, that I wanted to work in marketing research and I wanted to help companies build better products and deliver better services. And so I went into marketing research, but I had been really interested in media in general. I'm a huge TV fan. I, I was, still am a bit, but not as much a huge sports fan. And ultimately I wanted to combine those things and really understand how we should develop better television programs, how we should market those programs. And so I went from specifically research where I was doing CPG, financial services, media work into NBC Universal, which was really my first research job in entertainment. And I think I was just lucky to get into kind of the right place at the right time there in the digital business, which was very small, very nascent at the time. And it was really the beginning of the big evolution that we've seen. We used to talk about like OTT penetration and it was like 0.001%, right? Connected TV, it was just tiny. People were just starting to use DVRs. That's all we were talking about was like TiVo. 
and DVRs. And whenever we would go, you know, speak at a conference or a panel, or we were, you know, in the press about something, the questions were all about digitals, all about what's, what is this future going to look like? And I was working on that, which was great because it also enabled me to connect with a lot of the executives at NBC, get exposed to the beginnings of Hulu, for example, and other parts of our business, how we thought about distribution, how we thought about mobile, and how we were evolving the business. And I think that was just a really great way for me to be exposed cross-functionally to other teams, departments. And I, you know, the, the team was small. So I was working on every brand that we worked on and every topic, whether it was product development, whether it was what shows we should create, whether it was our marketing and distribution strategy, what ad models we should, you know, incorporate. And so I really got strong exposure to the rest of the business, which I think over my career enabled me to continue to kind of add functions and teams. And so from there, you know, added analytics and then paid marketing uh, or paid arbitrage, which I understood what topics were resonating. So I was able to understand what the best ROI would be, what we should be promoting and how that tied back, how we measured the success, because I'm really steeped in measurement and analytics over to search and then email and audience acquisition. And how do we use that insight to make sure that our messaging is on point? How do we segment our audiences and think about different products and services? And so that also led to kind of broader consumer marketing, brand work, design and experiences, communications as well. And so that's how kind of I've evolved to go across those different functions where I think data and insight is really kind of the heart of it and the insight that drives all of the other decisions that we make and then how we measure that success, which has become thankfully more and more and more important. Um, and so my ability to like understand that and understand the, you know, how data infrastructure and how to measure components of ad effectiveness and impact has been really valuable on the, on the marketing side and the B2C side as well. So your tenure at ESPN was about 20 years ago, and then give or take a little more than 15 years ago, you began your tenure as a director of research at NBCU. Give us your reflections on what the digital landscape look like then now you're immersed completely in a digital ecosystem but those were as you referred to earlier very different times in the digital continuum yeah i mean i love these questions because it's i don't get to talk about this very much and i, and I do it, it's interesting because sometimes i'll just come up with this insight or i'll think back to a meeting that i was in 15 years ago or 20 years ago and the the fights and arguments that we were having, um, really, you know, debates about where we were going that today it's like to see how things actually evolved. It was so silly to have many of those conversations. So for example, you know, when I was at NBC, we, I was there when we launched our full episode player, the first time we streamed TV shows online, we called it NBC Rewind. We used that brand for like a year and then it kind of went away, but we still used it internally. And, and everyone was just like fascinated to see like, how is this going to go? We had six shows that we streamed. And one of them was The Office. 
and the office is like our crown jewel, right? The office was the first thing that got sold out from a TV perspective, right? And everyone was both very interested in terms of how many people would watch this and how they would watch it. But they were also very concerned. They were very concerned about it cannibalizing our television ratings, right? Because we wanted people to watch on TV. TV was where the dollars were. TV is where the measurement was and the ratings. And so we didn't want to be, you know, going out and saying, well, instead of 10 million people tuning in, we only had 7 million because they were all streaming and streaming was garbage, you know, like at the beginning. Um, and it was kind of interesting as that change evolved. I did so many pieces of research on incrementality and how it wasn't cannibalizing our audience. And how everyone would always prefer to watch their show on their big screen, right? But if they missed it, if their DVR didn't work, right? And they missed an episode in a, in a show with an arc where it was important that they saw the third episode or the fourth wasn't going to make sense. But now all of a sudden we gave them an opportunity to catch up when they wouldn't have before. So before they might have abandoned the show, right? Because they kind of had lost the storyline. But now they can go online really easily, watch that third episode and go right back to their TV set for that fourth episode, right? And so, you know, we did a ton of research of looking into that and the, the who watched shows online versus on TV. We talked a lot about co-viewing that was happening because there was a sense that, okay, if you're watching a show on your computer or your tablet or your phone, you're definitely watching it by yourself. Nobody's with you. And you're not getting more eyeballs. And as a result, you know, unlike TV ratings, which incorporate the other people in the room from a like a Nielsen meter perspective, digitally, we just assume it's one person, right? You get an impression. Um, as we kind of learned more, we did see that people, and we did like ethnographies, that people were sitting together around a computer or connecting their computer with a cord to their television screen and streaming it on a bigger screen and watching it together. And by the way, oh, wow, advertiser, you're getting a ton of extra value because we're charging you for one impression, but you're getting four. So we were able to kind of raise up, you know, the CPMs. We were also able to do really innovative things in terms of the advertising experiences. We had something called the branded canvas. We did a ton of research on it and you could own an episode. You could tell a story. You could have a hundred percent share of voice. You could have people click through to buy pizza while they're watching a TV show. And that was incredible, right? And our ability to show kind of the performance and the value and really increase the CPMs became, you know, a, a huge selling point for us. And we started, the CPMs went up. We had dynamic ad insertion, which television didn't have. So you could change up your messaging. And all of a sudden, digital became super attractive, right? And even when we would build the models of the trade-offs, monetization on, on digital became actually better um, than TV in some cases. And then finally, I think when the measurement caught up, Right. So that you were still able to say that your rating was, you know, it was no longer 10 million anyway, because of a lot of other factors because of all the clutter and all the new programming. But you could kind of hold on to that audience and include them in your measurement. So it didn't matter if that person watched the office online or on television. 
they were still a viewer of that show and you could still stand behind your big number and you could sell your cross-platform campaign as the agencies moved into more cross-platform buying. So things evolved, but I think about the things that we were dealing with back then and we would like, you know, I do, I laugh at that now because it's changed so much. Uh, and a lot of the things that we, that, you know, the, I don't know if I would say like conservative or traditional teams were fighting about are pretty silly now. Um, we had to create a lot of change to get there, but um, it's nice to look back and see that like we, we made it. You know? we did. And things sure have changed uh, so dramatically. So without uh, uh, looking to tell tales out of school, you have the benefit of perspective having worked at three of the biggest players um, in media between ESPN, NBCU, and Discovery. As you look at those three companies now, what they were then, how they've evolved, ESPN back then, uh, obviously in 2002, much less of a force, certainly globally than it is now. Discovery's evolved tremendously. David is now the new King Kong. Uh, NBCU under Linda and a lot of other great people has continued to evolve and grow the Sky Partnership a couple of years ago, giving them much more of a global presence. But give us your reflections of the three companies, uh, any way you want to handle it, because not that many people I know have had senior posts at all three of those. Yeah. Well, ESPN, I was not very senior. I started there as an intern and as an MBA intern, and I continued to work for them in their consumer marketing department and team and definitely didn't have as much exposure to the rest of the business there. But I think what I loved about ESPN is I think they took a lot of chances. They lived a little bit on the edge. They were earlier in streaming and being okay with doing that and some cannibalization, but kind of meeting their fans where they were and are. I worked on the X Games there too, which was also just another example of like taking for, I think they were really early there in terms of like skit. We did something with Tony Hawk. I remember um, we were doing, you know, I was working on like the This Is Sports Center commercials and all that. So incredibly creative, taking risks, doing things that other brands might not do, probably more so than even than, than now. But I did feel like they were, even their licensing businesses, I felt like they were always ahead of the game. I thought they were always looking forward and making investments in the future, whether it was the future of viewing, the future of sporting sports. Um, and, you know, that was really fun. You know, the partnerships that I would work on, I was able to do a lot of things that I wouldn't have been able to do at other media companies of a similar size. So I think that spirit, um, was was really there, um, and they, you know, I think the brand is 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 great and really is still, at least for me. But of course, I know I'm biased because I'm a researcher. Still, the kind of home of sports. You know, NBC was very different. It was much bigger. Um, I was working much more cross functionally. I was working on changing something that you know, most of the business relied on, which was advertising around television um, and subscription fees. And so certainly, you know, as I think about working on things like the Olympics, for example, 
it was tough to, you know, get the team to allow us to stream anything because that primetime Olympics show was so important. And if you streamed the swimming in the morning and people could watch it, then you might not get the tune in for the primetime programming where all of the advertisers have bought into huge sponsorships. And I get it. Like I, you know, I get the economics. Um, but you know, I also on the research side was seeing people's frustrations of I get all these spoilers all day, right? Because of the time zone differences, you know, you'd have events on that they really cared about. They weren't broadcast, you couldn't watch them. And then you see the news and you know who got the gold medal in gymnastics and you haven't been able to watch it yet, right? So that was a really frustrating consumer experience. And that's where I felt like, you know, a lot of the time, and listen, businesses need to make trade-offs and they need to make decisions. But I think, you know, certainly there, you know, was a little bit less like risk-taking or kind of putting, you know, money on the line, which you know, certainly I don't blame them and I wasn't responsible for the PL. So it was really easy for me to say it would be great to, you know, have some fan service here um, and really make sure that people can see everything. And now you can stream everything. You, can, you know, that's another thing that's changed. But I think at the time I was a little bit more conservative. Another thing that I think about with NBC is they have really strong brands. I think a lot about like Bravo and a lot about sci-fi and a lot of work that was done at the time to turn it to the current spelling of sci-fi, but USA Network and the importance of channels and brands. And I, I kind of am sad that that's gone away a bit. And I do, and we just did some research on that, that it, it's hard, you know, when you look at your, your credit card bill and you see all of these streaming services, you start to add it up and you're like, uh-oh, I'm actually paying more than I was paying for cable. It crept up pretty quickly and I didn't realize I kept adding them on. And then when you think to yourself, okay, what does this streaming service stand for? Why do I have to have this streaming service? Like, What role does it fill in my life? It's really hard. It's like, okay, well, they've got a lot of shows. I can think of a few shows. But it's not like in your mind the way that you would think about sci-fi programming, right? Or Bravo, like it meant something. It was like, you know, something intangible to you, but it had a specific, you knew what to expect when you would turn to that channel and you knew that you liked that thing um, and that genre and that you knew you were going to get a lot of it. And we've lost a little bit of that. So I, I do miss some of that from NBC and I think they did it really, really well. Um, finally discovery, you know, discovery was a little bit of a different experience for me because of the, the huge importance of, of sub fees and the cable operators, which I hadn't felt as much at NBC and NBC was a lot about ad sales, but we had broadcast right? we had cable networks, but the pressure wasn't there in terms of the share or percentage of the business that was driven by subscription fees. And so as a result, there was a lot of hesitance to go direct to consumer. Anything that would, you know, upset or wrap the boat with the cable operators was something we had to, you know, tiptoe and, and walk very lightly again. So we tended to be the last to introduce things like even authenticated TV, TV everywhere, 
certainly Aspod, like Discovery Plus came out pretty much last and kind of have more of a wait and see approach because we had to strike that balance between the opportunities of a streaming service and the benefits of subscription fees to the business and revenue to the business, which again, I understood, but it was a little bit harder to push the needle and to take risks there. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of my overview. Great stuff. And I think you're right about how NBC and the cable years earlier built those great brands, those great channels as brands. And I think now there's, with all the streaming services, there is the occasional breakout show, right? I haven't seen it, but a lot of people are talking about the offer. Um, we did just watch Winning Time, which I thought was great on HBO Max. But I find it's hard to remember sometimes what's on what. You know, was that Amazon? Was that Hulu? Was that this one? And I think for the most part, consumers, um, that's, a, that's a common illness, I think, today. Whereas that was not the case years ago when, you know, the offering uh, pathways were a little simpler and a little bit fewer. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great point in observation because it was actually a challenge for us. Like when we started Hulu, so Hulu had... NBC, ABC, and Fox, but they didn't have CBS. And so one of the benefits or one of the things or pain points even at that time was unlike cable where you could go into your remote and you could search for your show, when you wanted to watch The Office, if you didn't know it was an NBC show, you weren't sure where to go. Right. So you'd search for the office, you'd find it was NBC, and then you would know to go to NBC.com to the video player. But it was multiple points of friction, basically, that you didn't have in cable where everything was together on one platform. And with Hulu, we did something that I thought was really smart, which was if you came to Hulu and you searched for a CBS show, CSI or something, it would send you to CBS. So even though we didn't have it, it started to develop this belief among consumers that I will find my show. So even if I'm not streaming it on Hulu, I can come directly to Hulu, search for my show and find it without having to know what network it's on. Even in a time when the networks were a bit clearer in terms of what each of them represented, there was still some confusion. Now it's impossible. I mean, it's absolutely impossible. I think the places where there is an advantage is usually no Disney movies, right? You know what Disney movies on Disney. You and you usually know what a Disney movie is because the brand's super strong and you're gonna know to find it there. And you know if it's Marvel that it's gonna be on Disney. So Disney, I think, and this is what we found in our research too, has a little bit of an advantage where they're associated with a specific genre and type of programming in a really valuable way in this ecosystem. I think the other platforms, especially because they're spending so much money creating producing new programming, original programming, as well as acquiring content and trying to get as much as they possibly can, as quickly as they possibly can. They really have not focused as much on like what specific genre, what specific audience it's been like, let this seems good. This is a fun program. 
And every, every platform is kind of everything for everyone, which makes it really difficult as a consumer to try to put things in a bucket and understand where something's likely to be. It's basically impossible. So there's a lot of Googling uh, for finding out where your show is. Certainly there's the on-platform promotion, which they use decently well. But I think that's a place too where fandom and a lot of the things that we're working on from a, a fan identity, fan hub perspective can help with, which is your one place where you can type in the show and find out where to find it and when it's on or when it's coming back. Because I do think that that's not, a, it, it's a big problem that hasn't been solved well and certainly won't be by each of the platforms themselves, which are not going to be promoting each other's programming. Great stuff, Stephanie. So for consumers, you could argue it's a bit of a maze or a tangled web, but it's an embarrassment of riches in terms of the quantity and quality of content that's out there. Give us your perspective for the brand community and how they're navigating all of this change and evolution. I want to start to also build a bridge to your tenure at Condé Nast, where you rose up to EVP, a big, big job you had there. But you've also been, with that research grounding, have the benefit of perspective on the pathway for brands in the last 20 years. So I'd love to talk about that a little bit. I mean, I think that for brands, certainly things have gotten a ton more confusing in terms of where to buy, how to buy, and how to measure the success of what you're buying. Certainly, you know, even things, obviously programmatic, which has now been around for a while and, and audience-based buying, but then also moving to... Um, you know, branded content, the effectiveness of social platforms, and how you basically tie all those pieces together, even understanding the frequency of exposure and your reach across the platforms is almost impossible. It used to be, you would know the GRPs for a specific television program, you would know the demographics, or you'd know the 18 to 49 rating, and then you would by that, and you'd know how many people you reached and what your frequency was on television. And now there's so many different things to buy, so many different ways to target and break down your audiences, so many different platforms that don't let you look across them to understand how you're messaging to different segments across time. And so it's, it's really difficult. Um, and I think media planners have a really tough job today to do the same thing that they could do before. You know, the only thing that I would say is, and I used to say this a lot, was 18 to 49 was, uh, and we used to push up against that too. I remember our campaign to go up to 54, for example, as boomers were getting really big. It was just a proxy for, these are the types of people we think we want to reach, females 18 to 49. Obviously, now we can get so, so, so granular in terms of, you know, not only every attribute of that person that you're targeting, 
but what services they subscribe to, whether they've churned recently, you know, lots of different details and really do them at scale. We'll see how, you know, all the stuff that's going on with cookies impacts that. But a lot of companies have a lot of first party data that enables them to go much deeper, much more targeted and to do that at scale. Like initially when we used to do that, I was like, okay, great. We can sell you a thousand impressions, right? Now, with the scale of the platforms, you can really size those up because you just, you know, a lot more. And from that perspective, I think the relevancy, you know, I always think also about the consumer ex experience with advertising, the relevancy is much better. I think the creative can be much more impactful. I think the creativity, I just got back from Tom Lyon also do a lot more interesting things, you know, I was looking at a lot of like digital out of home and think, you know, things that, you know, you weren't able to do before, but it is complex. It does take what, what some people don't think about as well as, you know, used to create a TV spot, used to go do a TV shoot, used to create 15s and 30s, used to run those on TV. And then we introduced digital and we were like, all right, we'll take your repurposed TV creative because that's what you have. You've got maybe a 300 by 250, a 728 by 90 banners, standard banners, IB units. You give those assets to us and then we run them. But then we started introducing the branded canvas. Ours was different from ABCs, which was different from CBSs, right? And then you start all of a sudden creating all of these different opportunities, thinking about branded content and all of the other places that we're going. And all of a sudden, every single media buy that you do is fairly bespoke and custom. And all of a sudden, instead of needing a team of 10 people to create those assets, you need a team of a thousand, right? So there's complexity kind of everywhere in terms of what you're buying, why you're buying it, how it's running, how you're measuring it, how you're delivering the assets to deliver against it in a meaningful way that speaks to that person on that platform in that moment. And I think things have gotten really challenging for brands. We were just talking about it at an ANA Growth Council meeting around, you know, how do you measure all of those components? How do you think about even the top of funnel brand work that you're doing and how that connects to ultimate conversion and performance marketing. Without the brand marketing, you might not get that person to go that last mile, but how do you demonstrate that connection when you've done that campaign on 20 different platforms where the person might buy two years later, you might not even be the CMO there anymore at that time. You know, how, how do we connect the dots across those experience. And I think that's, you know, a lot of what we're talking about right now, but to your question, I think it's really tough for brands. There's a lot of great opportunities and ways to be really innovative and creative and do amazing new things. It's really hard to demonstrate the value and the impact of that and to continue to get budget, you know, as you try these new things. Yeah. I think the uh, splintering of audience and, you know, the niching of our world um, has created real complexity for brands. And I, I share your take. So let's talk about uh, something that you did at Condé Nast that I remember when you did it, uh, I was impressed by it then, and I'm impressed by it now, and I'm excited to talk to you about it. And that's something that you created, which was their Condé Nast, the Performance Lab. I thought that was very much ahead of its time I'd love to dig into that a little bit with you as the uh, George Washington 
of the uh, Martha Washington, I'm not, I'm not sure which is politically correct, uh, of, the, of the performance lab. Yeah, so, you know, obviously my background is in research and I, you know, would have a lot of conversations with advertisers. We would do a campaign. I remember one in particular, I won't call out the advertiser, but the goal was to reach young people. It was to reach people, I think, 18 to 25. And they ran a campaign and we targeted, it didn't do well, didn't do well at all. And, you know, we looked at like the brand favorability. We looked at the purchase intent. It didn't move. In some cases, I think was negative. And we're like, all right. And I was like, all right, let's, let's go diagnose this. Cause I always wanted to dig in because the point is to optimize. Right. And the, the question is, is all right, well, is it, is it the problem with the platform where we're serving ads? Maybe we thought we were serving them to the right audience, but they weren't actually, wasn't reaching the right audience. Was it the fact that the context was off, right? So someone was watching a show that was totally unrelated and so it didn't, it didn't work? Or was it the creative, right? And, and the publisher is always going to want to say if something didn't perform, it was the creative. The creative was the problem, right? You gave us bad assets. And the advertiser or the brand's always going to want to say, oh, well, you must not have reached the right people or the people who are watching your programming aren't paying attention to the advertising. They clearly didn't notice it and we didn't perform. In this case, the ad featured a, uh, an older actress who had been in programming maybe 20 years before. And it was such a mismatch with the message and the audience that they were targeting. They were like, all right, well, now we're not really surprised why it didn't go so well. But also, wouldn't have been helpful to work together previous to this. And as long as you're going to be spending millions or hundreds of millions of dollars on this campaign, shouldn't it, you know, we make sure that it hits the right note with our audience and that it's going to be effective in advance of launching it and spending all of this money. And, and how can we help? Because it's not that brands weren't doing their own creative testing. They certainly were but they certainly weren't doing their own creative testing within the environments in which it was ultimately going to show up, right? And so how could we actually get in front of those audiences in those contexts in advance and help them optimize, understand what was resonating and what wasn't resonating as an example? You know, the, the other things that we could really do, you know, is, is share data and insights and help in advance with their targeting, with their messaging before they even started to consider it based on what we saw was resonating with our audiences. And so Performance Lab was really kind of a suite of products for our brand partners that was saying to them, listen, we can really help. We can, we know you're doing research. We know you're driving insights. We know you have data, but we have a lot of data as well and different data and unique data that can help you make better decisions. If you partner with us at certain levels of spend, we're going to include that. We're going to, you know, have that avail available for you so that your media will work better and smarter for you. And so that was really the whole idea behind Performance Lab is ensuring that our partners were spending smarter and better 
by us helping them with the insights and the data behind those decisions. I would think that that also strengthened those relationships with those brands. You were providing them with incredible intelligence. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and you know, every every brand and every client is is different, but a lot of the time, you know, you would you know, see, and, and, you know, I saw this over my, when I used to go do a lot of research presentations, you would have people at the brand who would say, oh, you're so passionate about this. You're so passionate about TV, so passionate about how people are viewing things. And it, it comes through and it gets me more excited about what I'm doing, you know, and, and that's like, that's what you want to do is you want to build a partnership. You don't want to go and just, sell units on a platform, right? It's not just a transaction. You want to create a partnership because ultimately, by the way, what we sometimes forget is that what both publishers and brands are both trying to do is to delight consumers, right? They're trying to serve their customers, their fans, their visitors, right? And we can do that best together. So it's also kind of when all, you know, all boats rise because it's going to be a better consumer experience. And that's ultimately what we're all trying to do. I think we forget that there's a buy side and the sell side, but there's the consumers, which is what we're doing all of this for, right? Um, And we build businesses around it, but ultimately a happy consumer is a consumer who's spending money with you. And so how do we create happy consumers? And so I think that's really about partnership. Um, at the end of the day. Absolutely. Very, very well said. So whether it was uh, advertent or inadvertent, you could argue that the career path you took really gave you a tremendous preparation to become a chief marketing officer. And at Fandom, you've gotten that opportunity. Um, I love your reaction to what I just said about really being prepared to be a CMO. And then I'd love to discuss your pathway to fandom. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I do think, and it's it's interesting because a lot of people, when I speak to a lot of industry groups and more you know, junior people who are earlier on in their career, and I've done some university chats too, is people are always interested in where did you, how did you get where you're going? or where you are. And it certainly wasn't intentional on my part. I certainly didn't think I'm going to be a CMO and here's how I'm going to get there and plotted that out. I think I've always just kind of gravitated towards what I'm passionate about. And I've, you know, been able to bring passion, honestly, to the table across every different function, figure out, okay, how can I bring this data to bear to help us with our distribution strategy and partnerships? How can I bring this data to bear to help us create a better platform for consumers? How can I bring this data to bear to help our advertisers and brands understand how to best work with us? And so I think ultimately just my interest in doing that and in servicing the fan, I think led me to a set of experiences and kind of just taking over things, inheriting things, growing my responsibility over time where, you know, I can connect the dots and kind of the underlying foundation across all of those pieces and really understand 
what's the best approach and how we build our business for consumers and how we build our business for, for brands and for advertisers as well. So when I got that, you know, when I was at Condé, I was working on audience development. I was working on research and insights and analytics across all of the brands, certainly connecting the dots, working on the evolution of our digital platform, which was obviously becoming very important, essential while I was there as people were moving away from print. And the opportunity of, of fandom was doing those things, certainly but also bringing in some other components that I was really interested in. So certainly things like design experiences, which I'm very passionate about, real life interaction with fans and how meaningful that is. And, you know, fandom has a pretty big, we're doing a, a large activation at San Diego Comic-Con for anyone listening, ping me if you'd like to come. But, you know, I just love, I love getting together with fans. I love focus groups. I love one-on-ones. I love seeing fans. And I was just at a big uh, fan convention in, in posed on Poland called PeerCon. And I love seeing people live their fandom and their fan identity. And so that was really appealing to me. I think maybe the most appealing part to me about fandom was our data. Because data has been such a big, important part of my experience and my background, how we've used that data to uncover insights, to target audiences, to build personalization at scale. And fandom has the best data. It has the best data on entertainment. And I can say that unbiased, hands down. And the reason is because for every IP, for every imagined world, you know, if you search for Luke Skywalker, if you search for Leslie Nope, if you search for Maddie Perez, if you search for any big character in any program, past or present, you're going to end up on fandom. It's going to be the first search result, and that's where you're going to come. And the reason is, is because Google knows that we have by far the most in-depth information on every fandom. So if you go to the Marvel community, it's 29,000 pages of infinite scroll content on every single detail. What Thor was wearing at this scene, right? In this specific movie and how that's different from what he wore, you know, here and there. And by the way, if it's not accurate, it's going to be fixed the next day because there's 300 million people on the platform every month who are ensuring that all of that is completely accurate. You know, you mentioned that we're, you know, we came out of Wikipedia and out of Jimmy Wales. So similar to if you try to make an edit on Wikipedia, it better be right. Um, and it's the same thing here, um, but it goes much, much deeper. And as a result, because we go so deep, because we understand every character and every dimension of each one of those characters across Paramount, HBO Max, PlayStation, Xbox. It doesn't, we don't have walls, right? So we can see the relationships and the connections across every IP, regardless of the platform or the gaming system or the comic book series that it's in, we can see that. And that is what I was the most excited about because the amount of insight that we can bring to bear, again, thinking about ultimately the consumer to create better programming 
to create better messaging, to create better targeting of advertising is incredible. And so we call that fan DNA. And Fan DNA Insight is a, a product that we have been working on and building that currently is available to our big partners where we do include very deep insight to help them developing their programming planning. It helps them develop their marketing messaging and their assets. It helps them target their media on fandom or outside of fandom, right? But it helps them really understand how to create the very best programming for fans. Um, and that is ultimately, you know, what I've always wanted to do. So I feel like, you know, we have this treasure trove that we are going to be, you know, now for our current partners, but also building out much bigger uh, across um, different companies and teams to come where we hope that this data and this insight will be part of the development of all of the gaming, movie, and television programming going forward and, and really create better, bigger fandoms for fans. Uh, amazing story, Stephanie. And it seems as we uh, just start to wrap, you know, if there's one word that really resonates in our conversation here, going back to uh, your days working for Congressman Conyers, it's that word passion and that you end up in a place that is driven by fans, by their passion, sure seems like a pretty good match to me. <laughs> it definitely is. I, you know, I, I'm obsessed with television game. My son is obsessed with gaming. I'm obsessed with television. My husband's obsessed with movies. I love movies too, but I love, I love, love, love to work in a business. And, you know, I'm a fan, I'm a huge fan. And I love to work in fandom and I love to bring fan insights and I love to super serve fans and I love to figure out new ways, gaps, places where we can serve fans, find those opportunities, those gaps of what platform it's going to be on. How do, how do we fix this? How do we make fandom bigger, better, easier? And so, yes, it's definitely combining my personal and my professional passions in a really amazing way that makes me excited to come to work or, you know, get onto my computer at home every single day. Well, absolutely fantastic. This was such a joy to get to talk to you. I really enjoyed our lunch with Anthony a couple of weeks ago and uh, getting to know you. Uh, and uh, thanks so much for doing this. We love having you here on Great Minds. Awesome, thank you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation. Marketers need to know that their ad spend is making an impact, now more than ever. With Mountain's self-serve marketing software, Performance TV, you can track how your connected TV budget is performing down to the last decimal. It automatically optimizes campaigns thousands of times using real-time data to ensure every ad is served with your goal in mind. Visit Mountain.com to learn more.